You're listening to the Bible 126 podcast. Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. Without going into the background, he says, But the hour is coming, and now is when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. That's a remarkable statement, isn't it? Almighty God is seeking for those who will worship him. But we have to worship him according to his terms, in spirit and in truth. And then Jesus goes on in the next verse, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So in worship, I believe, it's our spirit that relates directly to God as spirit. See, according to the Bible, man consists of three elements, spirit, soul, and body. I think our soul is very active in praise and thanksgiving. But when it comes to worship, then it's our spirit in direct communion with God's spirit. And we must worship him in spirit and in truth. Without the Holy Spirit, we really cannot worship him. I think those of you who've had an experience of being filled with the Holy Spirit will bear me out. It changes the way you worship. You have a new dimension. Uh, that doesn't make us perfect or superior to other people, but it, it does release something in us that makes us capable of appreciating what worship ought to be. But it also says in truth. And truth, I believe, requires sincerity. And I really believe it's extremely important that we learn to be sincere in our worship. Worshiping in spirit is a partnership with the Holy Spirit to glorify Jesus. Worshiping in truth is nothing hidden. Depart from me, I never knew you. Depart from me, I never knew you. I, I, uh, we can know all about people. We can study a famous actor, athlete, uh, philosopher, political leader, whatever. We can recite their birth date, their family names, or all this stuff. But if they've not let us into their life, we can't know them. Knowing a person requires their invitation and transparency. There has to be the openness and the honesty where we engage with a person and then there's that exchange on a, on a personal level. When God says, I never knew you, he knows the number of hairs on our head and has them numbered. He can, you know, he can list all the facts that would, that would wear us out about our lives because he knows everything about us. But it's the one thing that he will not do to come to know us. He will not invasively enter a person's life that is not invited because it actually violates the very thing that relationship is supposed to be about. It's supposed to be an invitation followed by transparency. So worship then is in, involves oftentimes music, involves many things. 
and uh, and worship is a huge part of our life. But there's an aspect of worship that sometimes isn't isn't emphasized or talked about a lot, and that is that we come everything exposed, everything is open. I I don't come with my agenda. See, if I come with my agenda, then I've got a secret place. But when I come to worship the one who is truly king and the one who is worthy of all my affection, all my devotion, then I come laying all agendas, dreams, visions, everything aside. I'm not there to engage with God so I can persuade him to fulfill my dreams. I am there as a transparent offering to give him honor. And in that relationship, something happens. He starts entering where I invite him. He starts engaging with me where I wanted engagement. He starts touching parts in my life that I didn't know I needed touched. He starts addressing things that I didn't know existed. But he did it not as this invasive, brutal, um, you know, taskmaster. But he comes as a father who sees the beginning from the end. And he comes where there has been invitation. In scripture, to true religion, is that people fear God. And real biblical spirituality is very contemplative. A lot of time is spent in scripture admiring God, thinking on who he is, what sort of God he is, what his being is like, what his character is, what his works are, what his promises are, where his presence is, what his glory means. A lot of the Bible is spent in contemplating God. Think of him. He's lovely in and of himself. Even the holy angels who've never sinned, when they look at him, do nothing but admire his glory. It's all beauty. It's all purity. It's all truth. It's all right. It's all eternal. They love him. They've never sinned. But they see nothing but loveliness and holiness in him. Do you think what he's done for you? You were a sinner. You are a sinner. You're a rebel on his earth. The great creator came in your flesh without your sin and died for your sin. The great judge bled at Golgotha. The one who upholds everything by his own word was crucified for you, if you're a believer, for you. That's what Paul was thinking about when he wrote, for the love of Christ constrains us, because we judge thus. If one died for all, then all died, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. That's what Betty Dusvan was thinking about when she wrote the old chorus. After all he has done for me, after all he has done for me, how can I do less than give him my best and live for him completely after all 
he has done for me. That is exactly how the Christian feels when he sees the beauty of God and he sees the wonder of redemption. He sees the great work of the cross. When he sees the blood of the Savior, when he sees the price that was paid, when he sees the horror and the stink of his own sins, which were forgiven by a holy God through the blood of the cross. That's what Isaac Watts was thinking about when he wrote, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. That's what Count Zindensdorf was thinking about, that great evangelizer in the early days on Europe, when he said, I thought that I should not be worthy of my Savior if I did not offer him what I loved the most. A lot of the Bible is spent in contemplating God. And there's not a lot of noise when you contemplate, though noise is not sinful. And there's not a lot of speed when you contemplate. Sometimes speed is necessary. There's a gathering of the thoughts. There's a slowing down. There's a quietening of the soul. There's the thought of God. So the man who wrote, My God, how wonderful thou art, wrote a verse which we no longer sing. Simply to sit and think of God. Oh, what a joy it is to think the thought, to breathe the name. Earth has no higher bliss. God is beautiful, merciful, holy, and some people live in the fear of God. They are blown away with admiration in thinking of God. And David says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Lord confides in those who fear him. The first place we learn to fear God, by the way, is here. What happens to every person in the New Testament who is a true Christian is that they get converted, baptized and join a church. And in the church they learn the spiritual life. But the spiritual life is not just church. We live our lives in the world. There's temptation and trouble and difficulty and anxiety and inconvenience and pain and illness and the specter of the grave. Through all of that, the church contemplates God and to feed that we come together and we worship the Father and we worship the Son and we worship the Holy Spirit and the people who adore God are the ones to whom he reveals his secret so 
Do you realize that some believers are closer to the Lord than others? And the question is, who are they? You see, this worship that adoration is so wonderful that one day there was a person in heaven and he was the most glorious cherubim. Every precious stone was his covering. I think he was not only head of the angels, he was head of the cherubim and the seraphim. And when he saw that the angels veiled their faces, the cherubim couldn't look on God. How in the world will you and I look on him? When the sun gets too bright, you put your shades on and say, oh well, that's more comfortable. Well, angels don't have shades, and so they look through their, they look through their, their wings to gaze upon the Holy One in Isaiah 6. And then with two wings they cover themselves because they couldn't bear the blazing light of God's eyes upon them like his eyes of a flame of fire. The Lamb. Glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. As thou hast died for me, it says, Oh, may my love to thee, pure, warm, and changeless, be a living fire. There's only one way it can be a constant living fire, and that is to gaze on his holiness, gaze on his majesty, gaze on his beauty, to worship him. If we really worship God, we'd never backslide. If you worship God, if you saw through into eternity, you'd never, never, never let anything or anybody get you down. <coughs> you would never expect to get good treatment in a world like this, not even from believers very often. And Revelation 7 and verse 12. There's a sevenfold doxology. Let me read that to you. Notice again, all the angels stood round about the throne and the elders and the four beasts and what did they do? Same old thing, they fell down before the throne. How in the world do we keep standing? Come on, let me ask you this, I feel a bit of anger almost in my... How in the world can church be so dead and preaching be so boring with a God like this to glorify? Why in God's name don't we go into eternity every Sabbath day and forget the stinking world around us and come out with a perfume of eternity upon us? Within the veil, Frieda Hanbury Allen says, within the veil, for only as thou gazest upon the matchless beauty of his face, canst thou become a living revelation of his great heart of love, his untold grace. Within the veil, his fragrance poured upon thee. The woman took the alabaster box of ointment, she washed his feet with tears, not water, dried the feet with the hair of her head, not a towel, poured the ointment upon him that was worth a king's ransom, and then she dried his feet with the hair of her head. What happened? The fragrance she poured out on him came back on her. Doesn't that sound a bit like the folk in the Acts of the Apostles? They took knowledge of them that had been with Jesus. You think anybody ever gasps when we leave church and say, Hey, what's wrong? Those people have a look of eternity. They have a radiance in their faces. I say, what, 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 what's happened to those folk? I tell you again that if the Holy One, the Living One, the Christ of Glory came into our assembly, if He walked in our midst like He walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, we'd either go out so radiant, so on top of the world, with the world of flesh and the devil beneath our feet, and nothing would move us, Thank you for listening to this podcast. You can see more podcasts on anchor.fm 
forward slash Bible 126. Also, there is a feature there where you can sponsor or make a donation to this page. Thank you and stay tuned for more episodes.